if you are somebody who's able to see the patterns, then you'll do well, by the way. But if you are able to actually break the pattern, then you'll do exceptionally well. When that halo drops, light up my mind. You know it's time. When that halo drops. What's going on? Welcome, welcome to Halo Drop. Uh, we're super excited. Christian and I are very excited today to have uh, one of our special friends and a guest host who's uh, taking India by storm at building the next multi, multi, quadrillion, billion dollar holding company, which we're really excited about. So, you know, as we, as everyone knows, you know, we started Halo Drop to go from always big ideas, bold ideas, and go all the way down to what really makes an entrepreneur successful and what are some of the tips that an entrepreneur can share along the way. So, you know, before we kind of get started, let me just kick off with a quick introduction on, on this privilege and honor we have to have Naveen here. Um, so Naveen began with McKinsey and Company as a business analyst from 2000 to 2003. Um, and then, of course, in 2004, he was an associate at Charles River Ventures. And then from 2003 to 2005, he studied at HBS, Harvard Business School, got a master's degree in a business administration MBA, uh, where he was awarded with the Dean's Award, because, of course, you know, it was very easy. Uh, and then he had exceptional leadership and his contribution also helped start a nonprofit. Uh, and then in 2007, when Naveen started his entrepreneurial journey with Abe, Amit, and Moeth from a shared apartment in Mumbai, I cannot wait to learn about more about these stories. According to his Wikipedia, he's known, as, he's known as the boys with PowerPoint. So that's kind of the, the slogan. Uh, they started their first business, MCoach, as an SMS search engine. And then they pivoted uh, for their business before pivot was a word to a mobile advertising technology platform called Inmobi. Uh, they moved their base from Bangalore to Silicon Valley, which is the Silicon Valley of India, to be the hub of talent and technology. SoftBank, Kleiner Perkins, uh, many other key investors helped really evaluate and bring up Naveen's dream from dreams to reality. Uh, his philosophy of constant innovation and disruption is embedded deep into the DNA of Inmobians and resonated across Inmobi. His dream to reimagine advertising is truly user-first and unlocks the true potential of, mo of the mobile ecosystem. Naveen is involved with fueling around 50-plus startups in India and has personally invested and supported several startups like Nestaway, SlideRule, Money Sites, Bombay Canteen, RazorPay, Paydom, just to name a few. Uh, he believes, and almost you can almost argue, helped start the startup ecosystem in India, basically building the first unicorn before unicorns had a word. He also founded and started a U.S.-based nonprofit called India School Fund, which I'd love to learn more about, and he helped set up schools in rural India. He's received several awards. I'll just name a few. He's Fortune 40 Under 40. He's the Pathbreaker of the Year. He's won the Forbes India Leadership. He's one of the 100 most creative people. He's probably the seventh most important person in the mobile power list. This is a while ago. Now he's probably the first. Uh, he's also mo the mobile top 50. Welcome Naveen to, to the show. Thank you so much guys. And I have no idea who gave you all of this, but I'll, I'll look it up uh, <laughs> and make some changes to this pretty quickly. Uh, but thank you guys. <laughs> Sunil, Krishna, Vishal, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolute honor and pleasure to be here at your show. And so good to connect with you guys. Uh, we've been as, you know, as we were chatting pre prior to your show, we've been, going through our own entrepreneurial journeys together for, you know, since we both, all of us started together like many, many years ago. So glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're extremely uh, excited to have you here and, and reconnect and, you know, maybe take a little time travel back and, and, and just sort of see how things have gone over the years and generally catch up. Awesome. Um, the idea, Naveen, is we're going to kind of just ask you some questions, kind of go into some interesting things. Um, Krishna, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at all these amazing interviews you already have, and we kind of almost put them into themes. Um, so I think one is, you know, the theme you did around kind of beneath the surface, which I thought was really a really good reflection on 
some of the almost the personality traits and what it takes to have the tenacity to be successful. Um, and then we kind of went in through the, you know, that story you shared from failure to success uh, and kind of almost dig deep into like, what were some of the big things that really made an impact? Um, and then the last piece really just like, what does the future look like? So it's kind of those, the three categories of how we want to further explore. And then the three of us will kind of just go around and, um, you know, start asking, asking questions away and, you know, looking forward to this discussion. Uh, before we kick it off, I think, I think all of us have some very funny uh, or interesting stories of how we first met you. Krishna, do you want to kind of kick it off and then we can go around and we can always talk about our first Naveen memory? Sure. So, um, you know, I was traveling around in, in India. This was after after Blue Lithium, trying to figure out, you know, what to do next. And I forgot who made an introduction uh, and said, you know, you should, should meet this guy, Naveen. Um, I believe we met in Bangalore. At that time, you were working on MCOGE. I'm not sure. It might have been Amr and uh, Amr Goyal and Rajiv. I, I think that could have been the connection. It was trying to figure out what what's next, what's the, the next big idea. And they're like, you have to talk to Naveen. He's working on something pretty exciting. You know, I think that was that was sort of the start. And I think it was pretty pretty interesting because you know we kept in touch over email. And as things evolved, and as I got connected to Sunil and Vishal, realized that the the circle was pretty small, and we all we all knew each other. Yeah, man, you just you just brought some some memories back there. Wow. I think I had the good fortune of meeting uh, meeting you through uh, Vishal at a uh, poker party <laughs> in like South San Jose. I think it was uh, John Sue's house, actually, uh, who we also all know. Yeah, we, we, we actually bet you at the same time. Yeah. And I think it was a it was a pretty good night. And, you know, it was uh, it was fun. We had a yeah, at that time, I think the initial primordial soup of M coach had already started to form. And you were like, yeah, I'm thinking about coming back to India to do this thing. And, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty exciting. So, Oh, man. I don't know whether you won or lost, but I, I certainly remember that party for sure. <laughs> yeah, because I remember because Aditi was there and, and she basically told us, like, oh, you know, you have, to, you, have to meet, you have to meet my husband. And I remember, I'll never forget this. We were basically, everyone was playing and then you kind of pull out a chair and you had your laptop open and you were just basically going through and kind of walking us through. And it was awesome because I remember, like, I was like, wow, like, you were very determined even at that point. And then after kind of going back and just looking at your story, I realized now, and you'd love to love to learn more about the origin story, but when by the time you actually even had been there, you'd already been pitching and, and really thinking about your concept for a long time. So like we were kind of looking at that, uh, like almost like a part of that journey, right? Where you're just really kicking off that, that, you know, that focus on like, you know, what should we be doing? How do we get investments, et cetera? Yeah, I, I would say that was just desperation just to get money from anybody. <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised having done that in those days. But so I look for any support. But yeah, that was because of other things. Yes, exactly. Um, awesome. So we can we can kick things off. So one of the things, uh, and we're just going to go around. So it'll be my, I think, Krishna and Sunil. Um, so one of the questions that we that I really took me when I was watching some of the, the content you have, which is great, is really around how do you drive optimism, right? Uh, one of the things that you said uh, is you have to be optimistic and you have to remain happy no matter what the roller coaster is going, you're going through. What were some experiences that you remember that really helped you think about that optimism and, and that focus on happiness? Because one of the questions we always ask ourselves, right? Are you born with that? Is it your environment? Like what helps you become that way? Um, so I'd love for you to kind of share some of those things as well. It's hard to you know pinpoint where in the childhood that actually would have happened. But I think my uh, one of the things I realized uh, in my family when I was growing up along with my, you know, my grandmother who was a professor, everybody in my family was like an academician. I'm fairly well accomplished, right? I, I would never see them really be too flustered uh, despite being in somewhat of a competitive environment. And uh, I saw them very early in their in their life journey when I was very young, getting very spiritual. And I felt that it was a 
it was a transformation that they were going through. I didn't understand it then, but you know, I have a better way to articulate that point today than I than I did back then. But I saw them starting to you know not get affected by the ups and downs of the work, but still like be very focused on the mission of educating people. And so you fast forward many years, and you know you know we're all roller coaster ride of the startups, which basically have you know so many ups and so many downs, maybe a few times a day. And I realized that I was going, you know, in and out of getting flustered too often, not being able to, you know, be optimistic was getting pessimistic about where the business is going to head out. And and I realized two things. One, of course, you're now, you're now leading an organization, so you cannot be very expressive about it. But you also cannot fake such things. So you had to somehow come out with an answer which was, which was more authentic about your own self. And I think that I went through my own journey of realizing somehow all of these things were taking me, making me too excited at times or too like sad at times. Like, so if good things were happening, I was like, Hey, amazing. Like, let's just go, go for it. And if bad things were happening, I should go home, you know, like those, and that's just not good because I think any entrepreneurial journey and you guys would know it equally, these things happen way too often. And at that point of time, I, I think I, I started to look around my own life and, you know, started to feel a lot more content with what I actually had. And what we were going for was was great, but was not necessarily the things that would break who I am right now. And I think that that whole constant up and down of life uh, at some level went, took me back to to where my you know grandparents and you know parents were, and realized that maybe it should, you know it should not affect me on either side of life so much, and therefore probably. I'm far more in control now. And maybe, you know, you go through 10 years of entrepreneurship to get that level of uh, semblance probably because you have been beaten up and down so so often that I think my band of uh, emotional ups and downs is is contained. So neither, I, I don't think I get overly ecstatic or, or overly negative about life and, you know, for future, et cetera. And I think optimism is something which is, I think it's inherently important because you know, we are trying to do things which have not happened. And so if you're not optimistic about it, there's no way it's going to happen. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we're trying to do things which are most people, when they would look at it, like will say you're crazy to try and do this and it's not going to happen. And so there is a very small chance that it's going to happen anyway. And so if you are not optimistic about it, it's not really going to happen. So I think it's a state of mind that you get through when you have, when you've gone through a lot of these experiences. And I think, you know, all of us here, you guys included, have gone through this. And so probably uh, some of these changes happen with uh, with time. Yeah. And, and thanks for sharing that. It, it, it definitely relate to that, the roller coasters of, of startup life. And, you know, the highs are extremely high and the lows are, or is, is, you know, you want to bang your head against the wall. And I've definitely felt that feeling at times. And, you know, I, I guess, how do you, you know, as you keep that optimistic point of view, even when people are coming to you and saying, you know, this can't be done, you're not going to succeed. You know, um, I'm sure early on, people probably thought mobile wasn't really going to be that big. You know, where do you get that energy and, you know, sort of happiness to, to just keep, you know, waking up each morning and recharging yourself and continuing to pound away? As entrepreneurs, uh, you are on to a journey because you're able to see something, hopefully, that others are not seeing. Right? That's the reason why you're on a journey that hopefully is going to be different. I think early on, a lot of us get very influenced by others and their inputs and what have you, especially if investors actually tell you a lot of stuff because you know you kind of expect them to know a lot more, to say, hey, maybe they see the world a lot more, a lot more 
deeply and they have seen a lot more startups, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the beginning, I actually took a lot of the decisions which were more aligned to what I was told and therefore they would not work out. And then I started to essentially make some decisions which just seemed, well, those decisions were not necessarily that well backed by you know, some data or backed by you know, a lot of the so-called smarter people telling us that you know, it would work. And those things worked in our favor. So for example, long back, you know, we started the company in India, but we you know, very soon decided to make this a global company. And that decision was absolutely not, was not supported by many people because you know, why would you as a startup with 25 people start to look at global markets when you should actually be very focused on one market? And I think that, you know, but that decision has become one of the biggest decisions that we thought we've made and, and worked in our favor. Similarly, starting the company from India in those days when India wasn't a startup country and, you know, nobody expected like great engineering talent to come out of here. We took that decision and stayed with it. So I realized and there, like, and there, you know, there is a lot of such decisions that we thought we made, which was based on our gut versus based on some, you know, pattern that was happening that seemed to have worked for us. And I think that to me is the core of what makes somebody succeed. So if if I think, you know, I, you know, I at least believe that if you are somebody who's able to see the patterns, then you'll do well, by the way. But if you are able to actually break the pattern, then you'll do exceptionally well. And so therefore, if you want to be an entrepreneur, build something larger, and it, you know, you have to essentially go for being able to break the pattern and be be okay in breaking the pattern and, and stay with it. I think it took few turns to, for me personally to see it. Uh, that it was, it was the right place to be. And it's hard even today because when you go against the pattern, there are a lot of people around you who will do a much smarter job of telling you what the pattern is. And it's so much easier to actually look at the pattern and actually call it out. So yeah, so I think that's boils down to the core of uh, your beliefs and your ability to take bets on those beliefs. And I think that's worked in our, worked for us a lot of times. And it's also not worked for us a few times, by the way. So the failures are also spectacular. That's when you get almost literally get told, I told you so. Well, you have to take that in your, in your stride and you're going to move on from there. And I've had those spectacular failures and I don't know what to do with it. I just kind of have them as a badge also and kind of move on from there. Got it. No, that's, uh, that's super helpful. And I think... One of the things that you sort of mentioned, which is you see something that others don't and you have to have that conviction. And, you know, a lot of people you're going through and talking to so many different VCs, so many different angel investors, and they're either saying no or maybe some like, well, maybe, maybe you can just. But when you were starting in 2007, 2008, I mean, India was still sort of in its second wave. How were you getting folks to understand sort of how big this could be? And were there key mental shifts that you had to do so that, you know, the investors could understand that and see how big it could actually be. Actually, to the contrary, I would say there is nobody who got it. Like, so everybody basically kicked us out of the, out of the room. And because I'd spent time at, at CRV, I knew all the investors just, just, you know, just by the nature of the profession, that's a small industry anyway. So everybody was a friend and they all kicked me out. I think I went through 40 meetings before I got the first investment. And the reason was very simple. Nobody believed in the mobile story. Nobody believed the fact that mobile internet would be large. Nobody believed that India would actually, India and Asian markets would actually be very strong and you know transform because of that. And so there was nobody who backed us. So we actually flew to the US and started to talk to the investors in the US. And that's where we got Tanner Perkins and, and Sherpalo, which is Ram Shriram's fund, to essentially back us up at that point of time. So it took uh, 
you know, that took a lot of toll on me personally and on the company because we were on the verge of shutting down. And, you know, it was just so frustrating because, you know, you're a first time entrepreneur, you think you have gotten gotten something interesting and there's not a single guy who's willing to believe in you. But when somebody did, it was, of course, you know, some of the best investors in the world finally believed in you. It also made you realize that, well, I don't need more than one person to back me up anyway. You know, so in this whole wide list of investors that you have, you know, we are actually the odds are in our favor. If you were to just think about one guy actually having to back you as against the, you know, getting like a majority of the hundred investors out there to actually think great about you. And I think that that's really helped because even, you know, if you fast forward many years, you just need few of these guys to back you up and you're in the clear water after that. So, but yeah, it was a, it was a hard one. Wow. No, I, I can only imagine just in terms of how many times if you keep knocking on doors and just have that, that grit to have that tenacity. You know, one of the things that um, I know you kind of mentioned that I'd love to dig a little deeper on is, is this concept of innovation. And I love how what you said, right? You said a lot of companies use money as a moat for innovation, uh, but it really just takes a different perspective to focus on the long term rather than just look at the short term, right? And if you kind of almost look at those two strategies, one company going venture financed, let's figure out I can just keep spending more money. And then you kind of create that hockey stick growth that I was looking for, or you do know, let me just rethink about innovation in a meaningful way. And on top of that, you know, innovation is even harder when you're thinking about starting this in India, which is what you did, because you now also have that different mind shift that needs to happen for people to even understand what, what to do. So uh, can you speak a little bit about innovation and how do you build for the long term versus the short term? Yeah, of course. Look, I think you're right. I, you know, in India, what's happened over the past 10 years or so, there's a lot of capital that's come in for a relatively small market. And therefore, every investor kind of looked at India and said, all right, you know, there's the US, there was China, and now it's India, and there's nothing else after this, right? So let's go all in. And so money came in much, much more quicker than, you know, than probably it was needed. And so you saw around India, you got like companies got really strongly funded, and they were effectively just spending money to send, you know, become very large. And that's very disturbing because if you know you feel that that's the only the air essentially tells you the surrounding air essentially tells you that that's the only way to succeed, but something doesn't feel right about that approach because it basically means that capital is the biggest differentiator. If that were the case, then you know many other companies would succeed. The large companies would be the only ones succeeding, right? That's not necessarily the case, and so. We tried to do a different approach, both because we felt that that may be the right way for us to do it, but also because we were actually forced to also think of it that way. Right? It was not necessarily that we were raising a billion dollars to try and you know buy an ad market out or anything of that sort. Of that sort. Uh, and so we realized that kind of creating an environment of innovation where you're just chipping away and building the right product, which is a very classical way of doing things. You know, you know, getting the product market fit right, making those things happen, and just getting the great product out and that may just take either three months to you know two years, who knows, right? And just making that happen again and again and again is the only thing that we have realized that that succeeds. And that has no correlation to capital. In fact, if it anything has, it has negative correlation to, to capital because innovation thrives in, you know, people said this and we've seen it, that innovation thrives in scarcity. And it really works, by the way. If you, if you are in scarce environment, you're really innovative, right? We can you know, people can make things happen at very small capital and like you're really sharp about prioritizing, you're really sharp about, you know, doing the right thing. And then all of that goes out of the window the minute there is a lot of capital because you're at ease and you're not like really thinking very hard. And I felt, um, you know, we've seen this succeed a lot for us, you know, whether it was innovation just in the ad market uh, space, uh, 
over the last you know five to ten years, or you know creation of glands. All of those things have have happened in house, uh, and we're very excited and and happy about the level at which we've been able to innovate and also create an environment where people think about you know innovation in a more fundamental manner. And we also think about, by the way, think about innovation now at many levels. So we think about innovation at the level of uh, people. We think about innovation at the level of, uh, you know, of course, product. We think about innovation at the level of go-to-market. All of these areas, we have tried to think about innovation as a core tenet to doing things. And what innovation at times mean as simple as to do things which are different and have the ability to take the bet on it. And I think that's what we have tried to do. And we've succeeded in that. And the good part about innovation is that, you know, even if you have 10 failures and you get one success, that's good enough because, you know, that one success is just going to be massive. And so we've had a bunch of failures in trying to essentially think about a new consumer-facing product. But the one that has succeeded, which is Glance, has now become one of the top 10 consumer properties in the world, right? So it's it's happened less than two years. And so that level of scale is, is pretty neat to have. And similarly, on the ad, ad business side, we've innovated our way while everybody said that the ad market is going to be crushed because of Google and Facebook. That, that didn't happen. You know, we've been able to innovate our way through that one also. And, and we're pretty we're exceptionally happy with the way we are, where we are in the, in the marketplace right now on the ad side. You know, there is this whole belief that we have to do things very, very quickly. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like 10 years is very quick. But I think people are in this zone of like, we got to kill it in the next one year or two years. And then I, and after that, there's no, there is no chance. I don't think that's true at all. I think you, one should be just patience and, you know, you know, I don't want to call it slow, but you have to be just, you know, growing at a, at a decent pace. You don't have to think about breakneck growth because they, you know, just by the definition of it, it's going to break something. And you also have to essentially you know, not rely on capital as a way to essentially bail you out of some place. Like, of course, you need capital. But I think those two things have worked in our favor. And I think, you know, having the virtue of patience has also worked uh, for us. And so, you know, we feel uh, pretty excited by that right now. It's amazing to to see what, you know, uh, all, all that you've been able to accomplish um, in, like you said, a, a short period of time. You know, people always talk about the, the PayPal mafia. And, you know, you've got, you essentially have, you know, you've created this culture where people have created over 65 companies after being at Edmobi. You know, I, I think one of the things to think about is as you've evolved from a small startup or a small idea, how do you know when to elevate from within versus hire from outside? Do you go through a process of figuring out when to coach someone into becoming a leader versus realizing it's time to bring in a leader who has experience um, to take us to the next level? Almost to a degree of fault, we would we would focus on people internally. Uh, a belief is very strong that you know, peop- if you have great people, you give them a little bit of time here and there, they would they would elevate themselves. We, you know, let's be honest to ourselves. We're not trying to send a satellite to the moon, right? We're trying to do simple stuff, and it's actually quite simple that you actually don't even need degrees at times of any major education to be able to do what we're trying to do. So if that's the case, then why why get overtly analytical about trying to get you know solve for things in a very different way? Now, of course, I over dramatize this point, but it shows our relentless focus on getting internal people to scale up, step up, and take the next set of responsibilities. And therefore, of the top hundred people that I have in the company today, most of them spent eighty percent of them spent more than seven or eight years with us. 
and you know we're 11 12 years old company and that gives us the strength that we have so if you were to ask me what's the core ip at that we've been able to succeed with it's it's that it's the longevity of the people who have spent time with us who know who know us who knows our strengths and weaknesses and vice versa now of course that does not mean that we do not bring in external talent but we only do it in scenarios where we cannot get anybody internally to take that position up uh, so there is a i would say 90 10 kind of a rule where 90% of the time, you know, we would have somebody internally take up the position. 10% of the time, we might have to go outside and get somebody new. But we are pretty happy with that feeling. We are, we have a sense of family in the company, uh, and we like it that way. You know, there is a debate that goes on whether you know you want to be a pro sports team or versus a family. And you know, we are absolutely okay in being a family. We don't care about being a pro sports team. We will not cut people off just because you had a bad quarter or two. We would not you know, throw you on the sideline because your work's done. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as saying, look, we are in this together and you've helped me and I'm gonna, we're gonna be together. Now, if you're, if you're having a bad time, you know, we'll most probably try and spend enough and more resources and time and give you to essentially you know, step back up and, and kind of go with it. And that's not a, a thesis that exists in corporate America or corporate worldwide, but we are, we are pretty okay with it right now. And we're very vocal about it also to say, yeah, that's, that's who we are. And we have uh, we kind of go go with that. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe switching gears a little bit, you know, given given the fact that you are able to make that decision to be a family versus a pro sports team, right? Because because ultimately that that kind of builds into the culture. You know, what are the what are the tips and tricks just on a on a daily basis when dealing with individuals that you are helping to reinforce that culture, and then just ways that other entrepreneurs can think about their teams and how they maybe can be able to shift a little bit of um, how they work with each other. I think there are two, part, two, three parts there, right? Part one is if you really start to think about success over decades versus over like few quarters and like few years, you'd change the stance anyway. And I think we, as I said earlier, we are too enamored by the success that we need to get in the next two years or three years that we actually miss the, the larger picture. And part of the reason for that is the incentive structures that the venture capital industry has, where they have a fund size of, you know, fund duration of seven to eight years. You're there to give the, the, give the money back. So they're essentially forcing people to make wrong decisions uh, as entrepreneurs to essentially grow too rapidly or do things which are just incorrect. And I think companies get built over 10 to 20 years. And, you know, if you're invested in the company, that's a great place to be at. So that's one, I think, just the time horizon view of, uh, you know, of what you're trying to do. And so our time horizon is pretty clear that we want to be around for many, many decades. And therefore, we need to essentially have a very different kind of a people associated with us. Now, in terms of how we deal with people, I think it's it's how we deal with our family. It's actually overtly simple. Like we, you know, of course, by the way, that does this does not mean that we're not looking to win. You know, it's a culture of being together, but yet trying to win big time. And those two can coexist. I think I think the belief has existed for long that, you know, winning and, you know, this being nice and, you know, having a culture of, uh, you know, family versus pro sports it cannot coexist. And that's not absolutely true. You know, in fact, if you think about the world, it's changing quite rapidly. You don't have the same. You have a lot of nicer people around, around you know, around the table right now. And, you know, that's that's pretty neat. And the way I think about this is very simple. You know, if I'm going to spend majority of my life working I want to do that with people that I want to hang around with. Like, look at you guys. Like, you, you're just hanging around with each other, even, you know, for whatever it's worth, because you guys just like to be with you, with each other, right? That's the, the most simplistic part to begin with. Uh, and if that's the case, then, 
then you want more of your you know more of such people around yourself who are similar to you and who you want to just hang around with and i think it's as simple as that is to say look you know why overcomplicate this equation by with anything else just actually have people that you want to be around with now of course you do the right things about you know the fitment the caliber of the people the quality of the people you do all those things which are just important but they come after you know you figured out that these are this is how i want to look at myself and therefore it it just works for us wow no i think that's uh you nailed it and it just it, nothing beats to your point right? how do you basically just slow down and really just focus kind of on, on what's important while all these other all these other external factors are kind of continuously there as well um, so thank you. So in this first part, this is kind of our first section, which we just did. So I think we've, I think this has been great. Now we're going to go into um, the next part of this, which is really that theme around the story from failure to success. I think one of the things you you mentioned um, is just really around almost having that innate hustle to really take on a challenge of starting your own business. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to kind of go into in, in, in this 2006, 2007, one of the interviews you were basically mentioning is your uncle offered you a position, offered you a job. And you mentioned a kind of a plant manager. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was like, you know, normally, you know, when family offers you something like that, you know, especially coming, coming, being in your living in your, your first response is, yeah, yes, I'm going to do this, you know, and, and if you don't, it must be something better. And if you're going to say, hey, no, no, I'm going to actually not only say no, but I'm also going to do something that no one's even heard of. And I'm also going to, you know, try to figure out what to do without any other resources. Um, walk us through kind of how, what you did to do that, because that must have just been a different perspective as well. I think my immediate family was pretty OK with what I was trying to do. They probably got it. But then you have, uh, you know, relatives who are just concerned about you. And in India, it's all one of the best parts about the country is that, you know, relatives really care about you. And that's pretty much what happened. It was to say for them to see. They thought that I was struggling to get anywhere, which may have been the case by the way at that time. And so they they tried to search for some things here and there for me, and uh, whatever their the resources they had, they they offered me a a job at a plant uh, of a plant manager. Of course, I turned it down, but it was I thought it was the the cutest thing somebody has done to try and kind of get you a job just because they weren't sure to how to ask, how to help, what's really going on. Like they had no clue about what I was even trying to do. What does it even mean? You know, nobody had heard of the word, word entrepreneurship. Like had, these things had no meaning. Startups had no meaning. Uh, so I just felt it was just an innate level of care the family and the, the support system brings for you, which gives you a lot of confidence over a long period of time. But the incidence was just a, uh, an indication of what what it, what it means uh, in those days for people to actually join startups and and therefore I'm actually utterly thankful to to the people who actually joined us in those days, uh, especially in the first two or three years. Uh, it's funny that we are chatting about that topic today because we have this Inmobi Mafia catch up tomorrow in Bangalore. People are just flying in from like all over the all over the country just for just for a dinner. And it's those people who were with us in 2008, 9, 10, like the first set of, you know, 50, 60 folks. And they, they all, you know, we get together every few years. And I'm pretty sure there will be no talk of work or business, but it'll just be a lot of fun. You know, it, it kind of, and the reason why we are all so close is, uh, of course, you know, it's the beginning of, you know, those are the early people, but also those, because those people joined by having their own, you know, challenges of joining an unknown company, whereas that was not a norm, I think also brings people a lot more together. And that's probably why we're all getting together. We keep getting together every few years, but I'm always indebted to those guys. 
it, it's all it's all the family and uh as, as you keep growing right the family keeps getting uh bigger I, you know during that that process you know you're the one driving that dream and sort of thinking through how big can this really get you know what was that that framework and and how were you able to think about you know m coach and then what was after m coach and you know how how what what is that process of continuing to think um you know bigger beyond just that initial idea i think the ambition is a constant process of you know how it keeps growing in size i i remember shutting down m coach purely because it was just going to be it was not that we would not succeed in m coach but we knew that even if it did we would be a small company if we were to succeed in it and even within mobi i think the the idea to essentially go from one you know let's say from india to outside of india was the ambition of making it a little larger and then going from there to europe and then going all the way into china even before we went to the us was all to say look if we were to succeed the the cost to output ratios were just always in favor of taking that bet for us and of course we entered the us last uh, which is again classically not the most um, you know followed strategy but we did that because again we felt that if we were to be successful in the us the the size of the business could just be bigger but so it's a constant process to say look if we are do if we have been able to get here what else can we do and let's push ourselves to get to the next next level and you know and that's really worked well for us and i think we've done it collectively as founders and as a group of people who have all continue to dream bigger and bigger and that's why this you know as i say the 100 people who are you know in my own mind they're all like co-founders they at least carry the co-founder mindset all have the ability to think bigger and it's a, it's a process right so you kind of get to the next one and then you think bigger and you collectively do it so right now a lot of these things are happening across the board and, and maybe in corners that i'm not even aware of uh, so feel very kicked about that because you know someday a portion of the business get we get to understand it's growing much bigger than you know what we had thought about and that's the place we want to be at got it oh, that's that's amazing maybe it'd be great to understand a little bit about you know given given that you had to make that shift from m coach to inmobi going bigger and i know along the way you've also released um you know a lot of you know new products um and new um, you know, ideas. How are you constantly uh, sort of innovating? Where I'm sure you come up with ideas, you have like a framework of uh, of hey, this might be really exciting. You go and execute on it, and it um, it either you know starts to succeed, has some traction, or it falls flat. How are you kind of thinking about that going forward? Because now it's also with that success also comes you know sometimes complacency or this ability to not to keep innovating what is the framework that you're using to keep sort of innovating and keep building products we have a framework that we apply which which we you know uh, very simply put it's called the 603010 framework what that basically is uh, and we have been using that for like many many years now it basically has three uh, you know across these three buckets the 60% is where you know 60% of our resources go after things which are revenue generating right so things that are in the on track they have to be the delivery horses for us and so they have to essentially make it happen the 30% are the things that we believe are pre scale up you know but we know that you know they have shown product market fit that we we can see them you know be- becoming the next big bet for us those are our bets so that's where we put in 30% of resources the 10% of resources we put across things that we really want to go for as experiments as as uh, you know as pilots or 
you know, whatever you want to call that. Within that, there are things which are called uh, moonshots, which who knows what will happen with it. But then within that, there are buckets which are basically to say, hey, we know that this is this. We need to do this. Just that we've never done it, so it's going to be small. But you know, it's only about execution on that, right? So you kind of put in a, uh, you know, you start with a, a small team and just kind of execute against that. That framework has always worked for us, by the way. So we are, we are very disciplined about the six about the sixty thirty ten framework, and we constantly kind of keep watching what's moving to the next, what's moving to the next, and we could kill some of those things along the way if they're not getting to the you know, to the stage of 30, if something gets to the stage of 30, it's rarely it will not get to the you know, stage of 60 because it should, ideally, because you've been able to get it to the 30. But broadly, I think that framework has really worked well for us. Uh, and we constantly and always try to use that as a framework. No, awesome. No, thank you for sharing that 60-30-10. Uh, um, I think that's, uh, we, can, we can dig deep. But the, the one thing I wanted to ask is kind of go into the phases you mentioned, right? I, I love what you mentioned, right? Like phase one is about dreaming. Phase two is about making decisions from your gut and then phase three is staying true to yourself. Um, and then I, I love what you kind of mentioned. You said, you know, you almost had the shock of entrepreneurship, right? As you kind of now move, you have this hyper growth mindset and now all of a sudden everything you thought was working doesn't work anymore. And you almost now have to really rethink what success meant. And can you walk us through kind of that framework of how you had to almost just become humble again, right? In a lot of ways, right? And you were kind of almost back to square one in a lot of ways. And I think that pendulum almost feels like a natural swing from one way to the other. Walk us through kind of that moment where you're like, you know what, if I don't stop what we're doing now, this is not going to work anymore. Look, I think you're right. This The, the whole thing about the pendulum is so correct. Like, you know, in entrepreneurship, you suddenly get success in the beginning and you think, hey, man, this is so cool. I'm going to nail this one. Uh, and then boom, comes the hammer down and you're just like on the floor and you're gasping for breath to say, look, what, what do I do next? And this is, this pendulum is, you know, as we were talking about this earlier, the highs and the lows are, the highs are too high, the lows are too low. That starts to make you realize that this is just a cycle. It's going to happen again and again and again. And therefore, you've got to change. If you want control on this, there are, you, you need control first on your mind, which is where you try and settle things down in your own mind. Because if that's the place, if you're not sorted there, then you're quite badly screwed, screwed up because you'll just be making very impulsive decisions at all points of time, which is just not going to be right, right? So you got to sort that out. Then you realize that things will go up and down. That's they're going up and down, not because what you're doing at times, you may have screwed up on some product or, you know, on some markets and whatnot, but there are so many reasons why things get screwed up. But I think the only reason why you come out of it also is around your people, right? So, so you kind of, once you sort your head out, you kind of go around and say, look, we need to have people who you can trust and, we, you know, are willing to essentially, you know, go to the battle with you. You know, they're just not here for the, when the tide's high, they are there with you, especially when the tide's low. And so you kind of solve for the, solve for people. The third thing that you look for is to say, if this is what's happening, the only way in technology is to come out is to essentially make innovation boring and try and like think about small innovation to large innovation and not just celebrate the big ones, but also essentially encourage the small ones and more importantly, encourage failure at scale. It's easily said than done, but I think we've been able to do that somewhat uh, successfully to essentially say, look, we're going to essentially try and make these things happen. But the last and not the least of it, but it was, we also don't think, you know, we want to be, a, you know, an idea shop because that has no meaning beyond a point. Uh, you also need to be able to scale some of this stuff. And I think we're pretty good at scaling things. I think one of the things that worked in our favor because we started off from India 
India is not a home market for you know for us. Uh, it's a home market, but it's a very small home market. So therefore, it, you know, you had to essentially have a global mindset, which meant that we are pretty strong globally in terms of go to market and scaling things at a global level, and that's really worked well for us. Uh, you know, whether scaling in China, or, you know, Southeast Asia, or you know, developed Asia to Europe to you know even Africa, and then of course the U.S. Right, and uh, all of those things have really worked in our favor. So I think at some level it is about you know certain things that can hold things together and then you know a few things that can really scale them up. Uh, so that's how we've thought about it. As you think about scaling and you're scaling through through technology, scaling through people, I think in one of your your interviews, um, you know, you were talking about trusting your people, um, but in reality, you never trusted your people when you look at the outcomes versus innovation. You know, maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about that. This probably was in the context of how we were, you know, when we were going through this whole pendulum phase. The thesis that I had was, you know, we wanted to grow big and fast and be very innovative, but I don't think we were doing anything except for doing lip service to these kind of things. I don't think we were trusting our people. You know, if you don't trust your people, then I don't understand how do you scale things at large magnitude because you're not going to be everywhere. And if you're not going to be everywhere, then then you have to trust people to essentially do it. And uh, or otherwise, you run harder yourself, like everywhere. And in the minute we tried to scale things drastically, we started to we started to see things fail. We had relied overtly on these processes to essentially drive the the business, and not the inherent, you know, much more deeper level of trust with people. At the same time, we wanted to do product innovation. And we were, we were asking our people to essentially put down what they would innovate in three months. Right? Literally asking them, hey, tell us what you would achieve in three months. And the guy's writing the first line of code. He has no idea what to how to even put that down there. So he would put something down there and then not get there. And now we'd be upset about it. Like we reprimand him for not getting there. But you know what? That's not like it was a wrong expectation to begin with because we were just flawed in the way we were trying to measure some of this success. Uh, and again, we just didn't realize what it take, took to build a, a company in this knowledge economy because all the systems that were taught to us, every one of us, were built for you know, manufacturing industries, labor, labor-centric industries. And so if you move from labor industries to knowledge industry, you have to essentially think about you know, your people, uh, policies, uh, you know, management styles to be very different. And, and they have to work for you. And therefore, you know, some of those changes we made and, and it's really worked for us. That's awesome. And maybe kind of taking all of that and starting to, you know, wrap it together. How how has the, you know, the InMobi group, where did it come from? What are the thoughts about, you know, sort of the future, um, you know, the ad business itself? Um, are you thinking about keeping everything together under a holding company? Are you thinking about potentially IPOing some pieces of it? Um, you know, what are the fastest growing pieces like Glam? And, you know, I think also uh, True Factor would be good to understand how you're thinking about the group, um, you know, for the future. Yeah, look, I think we, we've created a group structure right now where we have two you know, fairly large companies underneath that, you know, one is the movie business and other is the glance business. One of the things that we've tried to do at the group level is to essentially create in a reverse order, a classical internet company, which has fairly large consumer properties and has built an advertising business on the back of it. That's how typical 
you know, you look at Google or Facebook or Twitter or, you know, you know, any of those companies, they, they get built. But we started off with an ad platform and then we have built a B2C platform. So there's some way reverse the, the approach uh, there. But net-net, I think at the group level, we now have a fairly big, one of the top 10 consumer properties in the world and scaling pretty rapidly. And we have a fairly strong ad platform that's, you know, globally present. And so it's a fairly strong play for us to be at at the group level. If I look at the ad business, that's that's doing phenomenally well for us. It's you know growing at about forty percent a year, at a fairly large scale, and has a close to about forty percent EBITDA margin. Uh, and so we are pretty excited about what that business is doing. I think you know it'd be uh, one of the largest ad businesses right now in the world. Certainly outside of the Google, Facebook, Amazon's, it'll be in the you know top three to five businesses out there. And I also think that the ad business is a secular business that's constantly going to just continue to become larger and larger and larger. And, you know, we just wanted to make sure that we are one of the top players in that industry globally present. And I think that's the stage. Given the metrics of the business right now, we think, uh, and the ad tech index is so hot uh, that we think, you know, IPO is a good option for us to explore. And so we will explore the IPO soon. Uh, We are still in the exploratory phase there, but we'll certainly do something on that in that direction you know, whatever year or so. But that be just for the in-movie business. Uh, you know, for example, the Glance business, we have truly innovated on the lock screen and, and revolutionized the lock screen to essentially believe that the lock screen was, you know, was an open secret out there, which basically required uh, somebody to come in and, and drive a lot of innovation on it, drive like artificial intelligence-led content on it, and we are doing it. And it's already at about 125 million daily active users and potentially can scale to uh, you know a billion people in the next five years. So that requires a different level of investment profile and focus, which does not need to be in the public eye right now. And therefore we'll keep that portion of the business private for a while and, and just continue to scale that. So there are two businesses and you know, we're just very focused on both of these businesses, but with slightly different paths right now. Awesome. No, thank you. Um, one thing I wanted to learn more about is kind of, you mentioned True Factor, because I've heard about Immobi, I've heard about Glance, uh, but True Factor was something that I thought was very fascinating because it seemed like it was a, a, an amazing opportunity to almost take a lot of the data and infrastructure and AI ML skills you've helped build out. Can you just walk us through a little bit more about your vision and goal for True Factor? Yeah, look, I think there are two, three things that we're trying to do, and it's still in its infancy right now. We're certainly trying to figure out if there is something that we could do with you know, there is a world where there's data and privacy, which has become like the center pin of anything that's happening in the world. That's on one hand. The second is you still want to be able to leverage data in a in a meaningful manner, despite all of that happening. We are trying to build a system that allows for that to happen. Let's see where we get to. I think we're still in the early days of, you know, of that platform. We are certainly focused, for example, on the retail industry in that business to see how best we could leverage data in that business in a way that could lead to better results for everybody around, you know, around the table, yet, you know, kind of cater to the users and cater to their needs. I think we're still a few years away from that business um, uh, in some shape and form. So we'll see where that gets to. Awesome. One, one question on, uh, you know, just thinking about Glance and how big this could be, you know, it's that your, your second unicorn, which is definitely exciting and, you know, huge sort of nod of encouragement and acknowledgement from, from Google with the investment last year. Maybe, you know, can you talk about where, how big you think Glance can really be? You know, I know there's, there was an acquisition of Reposo, you know, last year and as TikTok is exploding across the, 
across the globe. Um, it's, you know, banned in India. Any thoughts or anything that you could share about Glance and, you know, maybe that direction around the, the creator side and content creation? Yeah, of course. Look, you know, we, we have huge, we have made a massive bet with, with Glance. As I said, it's a platform, the lock screen. I don't think there's any other platform like that in the world right now. We think the market is the world. It's every every smartphone in the world is the market for it. And so certainly, you know, we're going to go, we're pretty good at taking platforms globally. We are already doing that with Glance. And we really want to take that, uh, take Glance global in the next you know, few years in a big way. We think it can get to about a billion users within the next five years. And that's a pretty massive scale to be at. In addition to that, we think that, you know, because we have been able to get Reposo as part of our portfolio, we have a very strong understanding of the creators and the creators are just phenomenal at the quality of the content that they create. And so one of the things that we're doing on top of Glance is not just like show text content or just long form video. We're actually trying to do, you know, live video, live shows on Glance. Uh, so think about the lock screen, being able to get like live programs on top of it. In effect, if you think about live, you would see a sport or some movies kind of going live today in the world. But I think, you know, there is so much happening in the world right now. If you think of the world as a bazaar, like every event, you know, you want to be able to capture and see. But how do you see that in the digital world is you kind of bring them on you know, through AI. You can bring them to say, you know, Vishal may want to see some some live events. I may want to see something else that's going live based on my interest. So how do we essentially replicate the world onto the phone and we have lock screen for that. And the third piece on that clearly is we are leveraging that for creating true bazaar by, by launching commerce on it, right? So that's our vision for, you know, for Glance and we'll see where we get to. Still, it's not been two years that we've launched Glance, so still some ways to go. Sweet, that's really, really exciting. I know we've covered uh, uh, covered a ton. Um, you know, this is kind of the the, the fun rapid fire uh, interview questions. Um, you know, just really quick answers. You know, first words that come to your mind. And, uh, I always hate these buttons. Yeah, <laughs> no, just really... <laughs> I never come up with answers on this one. <laughs> What's one thing you wish you had known uh, when you began your career? To be a lot more patient, probably. What is your biggest failure? And what you what is it? What have you learned from it? I launched a platform in 2015 with a lot of fanfare, with public fanfare, and that failed big time. What I learned from it was, I think I went too aggressive, too quickly. But more importantly, I think I went too public with it too quickly. And I think the failure was not the idea, but was because I went too public with it too quickly. And you know, when you kind of go public with something too early. The pressures around it just drive you nuts, and so I think I've learned at least that bit from it. But I, you know, I wouldn't stop betting. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's learned. Um, it it kind of reminds me we were, um, you know, Elon Musk was on uh, in Clubhouse uh, a couple of days ago, and, and someone asked him what motivational advice would you would you give to an entrepreneur and he said if they need uh motivational advice then they're in the wrong you know the wrong field or they shouldn't even worry about it <laughs> exactly <laughs> maybe one two or three books that have influenced your life greatly i'm actually not a big big reader i'll tell you why let me just let me, of course i've read a few books but i'm not a big reader 
and I don't say that because you know uh, for any reason. I think you know when you read these books, everyone has their own perspective and they put it in the books, and they kind of tell you what that perspective is, and it kind of messes you up. Um, but I actually think you know if there is a certain perspective in you that you hold, uh, then let's just stay with it. Um, it may not be perfect, but at least it's yours and there's clarity. And therefore, I've avoided reading a lot of the books because I think they, everything that you read seems right because the, the, you know, the writer writes it because it seems right. And so I've avoided reading books, especially over the last many years. There is there are certain point of views that I have, and you know, even if they're wrong, they're at least mine, and I'd rather be wrong than confused. Spot on. What are some bad recommendations or career advice you hear? I think people get recommended to essentially jump uh, jobs too quickly. They are trying to optimize for short-term 10%, 5%, 10%, 15% gain in compensation. I think second, I don't think anybody's advising people to realize that the true reason why people succeed is because not just your own ability, but in addition to your own ability, somebody else has to put their trust in you and therefore will take you up along with them so that you can really scale up. And so I don't think people are investing behind trust and, uh, you know, of few people and, and, and kind of choosing their, those few people that they can trust with and kind of be associated with them for long. Uh, I think the individualistic nature of people to say, I, I'll just make it all by myself, just by myself, may not be the best thing to do. And, you know, that may seem cool in a short period of time, but I think we really want to do, you know, a lot of us, by the way, uh, you know, people who are well-educated will all do well. I think the difference between is doing well versus doing exceptionally well. And, and I think people are just optimizing for doing little, you know, little better uh, versus trying to figure out what would it take them to do exceptionally well. And I think that's not the right career advice that people give them. Got it. Work-life balance um, as a founder, is that, does that exist? I don't think so. I don't think there's, you know, you've got to choose one and then you've got to, you know, kind of make sure the others don't break. So I don't know whether there's anything like work-life balance you have a certain mission and you're going for it. If you know, if you feel excited by that mission, then you'll just, you know, you'll not be tired, and that will be that's what you'll go for. Uh, so I don't think that. Yeah, I think by definition, if there is balance, that means you're not going for something. You're not going for that one thing. You're actually not going for anything. You know, you're neither going for the, you know, neither going to really do well on the family front. <laughs> You know, neither you're going to do well on this front, so you're just going to, going to be somewhere in between. So I don't think such a concept exists. What's your guilty pleasure? Watching cricket, uh, old cricket uh, videos in between meetings. Nice, nice. Got to get amped up for the next one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things you mentioned is uh, your, the frugality you have, and you were kind of mentioning that with the Wi-Fi scenario when you're at the Hyatt. What's you right now? What, what do you basically spend a silly amount of money on that's your personal passion well these days you're not spending money on anything but i i have this you know this is ridiculous but i i, I end up it used to end up traveling a lot right it should be at the airports and i would just end up buying shoes and that just be so so odd because i have more shoes than my wife and everybody else put together at home and that sort of thing that i really tell anybody anymore because like i have two shelves just for myself for my shoes and you know i i don't think i wear them at all but you know it's just a it's embarrassing. <laughs> That's okay. We all we all have our, our duty free shopping. Exactly. <laughs> space travel. Do you, do you make it out to space? Um, 
you know, is it Elon or Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, or or do you plan your own venture to to space? Not yet. I have not yet planned it. I think I don't know who's, which one of these guys, but I have not yet planned one. I'm still trying to figure out if there is a way to solve for Bangalore traffic, and I think that's a harder problem to solve for than like going to space. So maybe I'll just stick to that one for for the time being. Okay. You get to time travel, and you know you get to meet Naveen from from high school, going into college. What do you what What do you tell What do you tell Naveen? <laughs> it's the last question, by the way, Naveen. It's the last question. Uh, yeah, last question. <laughs> and can I time travel back and fix this answer later on? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I, you know, take the path which is less chartered. I think it took me much later in life to take the path which is not a traditional path. But I think, you know, go back to high school, I think people, sh- kids should be encouraged to essentially do things which are just different. And, you know, I grew up in India and that wasn't the case. Uh, you actually had a very steadfast path to take. You know, if I go to engineering, you go to like, you know, safety was the biggest thing to solve for in life, uh, just where, where India was in the mid 90s. And I was on that path. And, and I think to get off that path takes time and takes a lot of mental setup to change. And if I could, I would go back and, and have that mental setup change, you know, probably five, 10 years earlier than it actually did. Thanks so much. Really appreciate all the, all the time um, today. And, you know, you're definitely a true uh, mentor and inspiration to, to us. And, you know, we always get excited about all of the, all the awesomeness that you're doing um, in the world. Um, as well so hopefully we'll, we'll get to meet up in person soon yes but well, well, thank you so much guys this is really cool and very fun and I uh, uh, truly enjoyed this when the hate-